All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck sticks? That one's not particularly nice. What the fuck sticks? Hey, hey fuck stick. It's not a great thing. What the fuck topians? I've been doing this for over a decade. Wait, what? Like two years? What is this? Like 12 years? What is it? Like 15? What is it? Like 19 years? How long have I been doing this? 45 years? What's happening? Today on the show, Azazel Jacobs. Aza. Aza Jacobs. Uh, he's a director and a screenwriter who made films like Terry with John C. Riley, The Lovers with Deborah Winger and Tracy Letts. And his new movie is French Exit with Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, who actually got a Golden Globe nomination for it. I And I love that movie. The interesting thing about, about Aza is that... Uh, I met him years ago. He was uh, somehow connected to my ex-girlfriend, Sarah. And we talked a bit. I knew he grew up in New York. I knew his parents were artists. But I, I did learn about his parents sort of more in depth later. Ken and Flo Jacobs, who were and still are experimental filmmakers. But what we learned in this conversation is that Oz is like firmly sort of steeped in that world. It's a small world and it's an interesting world. And it was a world that had an impact when the entire world was smaller. Before the big internet, where uh, little pockets of humanity and art could really sort of um, serve an entire community or be special in almost a global way and had a certain certain traction and integrity, a, a sort of uniqueness. But now it's just blown open, man. I could be an experimental filmmaker. I think I'm going to be an experimental filmmaker. Have you ever made an experimental film? No, but I got a phone. I think I'm going to be a novelist. Have you written anything? No, but I got, I can, I've got a computer. I think I'm going to be a comedian. Have you ever done stand-up? No, but I, I, I watch. You can do it. I just got to get, I have, there's this place near me where if you bring 10 friends, you can be a comedian. And now I'd call myself a comedian because I brought seven friends at this age of fucking entitlement. How are we not all preoccupied with just ourselves? Jesus Christ, man. Some days I'm just full of fear. Other days I'm smoking fish. I'm playing with a kitten. I'm building shelves. I'm still sorting out what was in the old garage. I brought some stuff to be framed. I'm getting my house together. I guess I'm planning on staying for a little while. Obviously, this is probably going to be the last house I live in. It's weird to think of that shit. What am I doing it all for? Right? I think I'm starting to appreciate why we do things. Maybe meditation has something to do with that. Maybe it's just age. Maybe it's just the fact that my father does nothing. And uh, he has no interest in doing anything and hasn't for years. But he does complain about having nothing to do. He doesn't want to do anything. He's not interested in anything. He's bored and he complains about having nothing to do. I don't want to be that guy. I'm finally putting my office together. But as I was saying, I'm still sorting through the massive amount of stuff that accumulated in the old space. Tchotchkes, bits and pieces of fan art, pictures, books. And I'm trying to make an office in my house. 
And it's just odd to go through a lifetime's worth of shit. I'm not that nostalgic. I'm really not. But there's a few things, a few key elements from my life that I'm nostalgic about. And they have direct connection to this undertaking, to this podcast. There's a painting I put up on the wall in the house, in the office. Of It was a, a fan, a piece of fan art, had come to visit the studios when we were doing Air America. When Air America Radio was at the old WLIB studios... There was a door into the studio and there was a little sort of uh, uh, saying that was taped to right next to the doorknob, a, a little kind of a affirmation that was put there before we even got there. WLIB was a African-American station. Some of the people from that station worked on Air America. My partner, Mark Riley, did. But just above the lock on the door, it said, do something today which the world may talk of hereafter. And that was and just beside the door was an on the air sign that lit up. And someone very cleverly, I can't remember the woman's name, I'll have to find it, did a painting of just those two things. And it's a great little painting. And I put that up on the wall in the office and I had been sitting on it for a while. It wasn't up anywhere for a long time, but now it means something. It means the beginning. Me walking through that door was the beginning of me figuring out how to be on this microphone. And then there's another uh, a painting that I, I just brought in to be framed by another fan whose name is, uh, I believe it's Dmitry Samarov. I believe he is a artist and writer. I think he's from Chicago, but I love his art. And he, he somehow from a picture of the inside, the picture of a photograph of the inside of the old garage, he did this painting that almost looks, looks abstract. But if you look at it for a while, you realize it is of the old garage, of the interior of it. And I love it. So that's getting framed. But I, the point is, on a day-to-day basis, because I don't have children and I don't have you know, as much of a connection with my parents in, in uh, a kind of um, detached way where I, 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 don't, I can't really quite explain it, that I don't always know what life is for. I don't always know you know, what I'm supposed to be doing. But because of this year off that we all took, we all took a year off to be, you know, uh, terrified and um, uh, existentially devastated and financially compromised many people. It was a a, gr- a great uh, year off for many and it's ongoing. It's It's, we're still in it. But because of that and because of what I went through over this last year, I've really confronted with the idea of like what is what is life what is the big payoff is it to to stay engaged and keep working is it about achieving things you know what is it about i mean i don't have children to look at and say look what i did i guess i have a a body of work that i'm proud of but i i'm just trying on a day-to-day basis to have a certain amount of acceptance but also to like enjoy life a little bit and be okay with that or to at least have some sense of what it's for. And then when I'm, I'm doing all this stuff in my house, every day, every action I take that pr- brings me some joy is counteracted with this idea of what fucking difference does it make? It, they, they operate together in me that, uh, you know, I love that who gives a shit. Um, this is amazing, but doesn't matter. God, God I love doing this, but it, it doesn't mean anything. Now, if I could somehow get rid of that second part, that second voice, that 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 counterweight to everything, at least for a little while, it'd be nice. 
I think the meditation's hap- uh, helping. I think the kitten helps. I'm also like feel like maybe I should be of service more. I think I rationalize that because it seems that this podcast and you know my presence in the world on Instagram again for those of you who who care or who listen to this I think I'm I think it's helpful I, I hear from a lot of people it helps and I'm glad to help but I think I don't know that I can say like well like I'm really doing my part am I um I guess what is the point of this it's Passover it's Jew time you're not supposed to be eating the bread. I don't celebrate any of it. But happy Passover. I don't, maybe my tone isn't good. I, I, I hope you're enjoying family the best you can. I hope that some of you are able to spend time with your family. I hope that uh, you know, you're being as Jewy as you possibly can as a Jew. And those people who don't understand what Passover is or it's not their holiday, uh, once you try being a little Jewy too. I don't know, man. I guess I just want to be at peace with who I am and what's around me, but that it becomes very difficult because some of that requires some engagement, some service, some vigilance, and uh, probably a little bit of righteousness in the sense of principles. But other days I'm just like, fuck it, man. I mean... I bought a set of shelves from a company that I know is not good, that I know donates money to the wrong place, but they had the shelves I wanted. They had the shelves I needed. They had the exact things I wanted. So I'm like, is my $200 really going to create the next dictator? Might help, but do my shelves look good? Yeah. Do they hold everything I wanted them to hold? Yep. Did they come out exactly? Are they exactly what you wanted? Yeah, they're making me happy. Well, is that is that too big a price to pay for the next fascist dictator for putting a few bucks towards that? I know these shelves look really good, but you you shouldn't support. I know, I know, I, I but I, it, but I mean, the shelves is like all right, but just know, you know, when you're being taken away. From that house with those shelves. You might have paid for those shoes that guy's wearing. For those boots. That he's got at your throat. I know, but the shelves, man. I mean, you know, it's like... Right? I mean, I don't know. So, Aza Jacobs. Interesting talk. I find that there's so much art and there's so much music and there's so much I don't know and don't understand and haven't been exposed to. And I think of myself as an open-minded, educated, and uh, exposed guy, but it never stops. You can always put new stuff in to the mind. Uh, Oz's movie, the new movie is French Exit, starring uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Lucas Hedges. It opens in theaters across the country this Friday, April 2nd. I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed talking to Aza. I'm ready for the art. Are you ready for Aza? Here he comes. Aza. Hello, Mark. How are you, buddy? Good. It's nice to see you. Thanks for doing this. You left California? 
I've been, you know, what happened is about, I think about four years ago, we had a fire in our place in Highland Park, not like a huge fire, but a big yeah. enough fire that we had to move out of that place and put all of our stuff in storage. And then we've been kind of just, my wife Diaz and I have been kind of just going to wherever work is. And we've been going, and especially because my folks are still here. And um, so I've been going here a lot. I'm kind of spending time here and in New York City and Los Angeles. But then when this whole thing happened, I was just pulling my hair out over there, really. What, so the about, plague? The plague. Like it wasn't, uh, you, no one got hurt? and No, no, no. It was a dryer fire. So it was uh, it was a real one. Like it was a few fire trucks. I was not there. Dio's is home. Did you she own the house? Like, no, no. Oh, so okay. it was kind of a perfect time for the, you know, for the landlord to get us out because the neighborhood was changing so much and she right. could sell the home for a lot. So it all kind of worked out, uh, especially for her. And now you're just back in New York. You got your folks house? No, I'm, I'm nearby though. So we're what at part of place- town? Lower East Side, and so and they're still in Lower Manhattan where I grew up. Man, I miss it, man. Now that I think about it, we're living down there on the, in the snow. I lived on Second between A and B, and yeah, it's. I can't imagine New York. It's so sad and empty now, right? It's amazing. I mean, it's just com- it's just right up in your face every day. I walk out, I see another store that's gone, and you just there's like people that did nothing wrong, just um suffering suffering like and uh, in places that i remember well and have had history and only contributed to making this city what it what it's been for so long yeah and uh so it's 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 very different than being in los angeles where it was easier for me to just kind of avoid but at the same time the 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 life that's still going on that's persevering these kind of like, you know, the the weeds that keep happening and these yeah. little conversations that you hear behind people, like that's happening still on the streets, even through the mask I can hear and all these amazing stories that you just want to kind of keep walking behind somebody and seeing what's going on with their life. Yeah, I mean, I talked to uh, Patty Smith a few months ago and she's down there and she posts on Instagram a lot. And it's I, I sort of like, I, that feels tapped into me when I see her talking, uh, Patty Smith in her yeah. little house <laughs> yeah it's it, and, and i go down to my folks and we walk around the block and just seeing the city from and that like that neighborhood is exactly pretty much how it was growing up now it's that empty again you know like what, i was tribeca? growing up yeah yeah before it was called tribeca it was just this uh you know place that i could play in the middle of the streets it was just an empty empty there was just the artists there and it was like industrial lofts right it was totally industrial and also a lot of abandoned, like not abandoned lofts there. It turns out there were landlords that had these lofts all boarded up. So they're waiting for the market to change. And it never made sense to me. There were so many buildings that were just empty. Yeah. And I didn't really, and I remember my parents explaining to me, well, they're holding on to it in case the neighborhood goes up. And I didn't make, there was no chance that this neighborhood could go up. You know, it was just a, in your mind. Just, yeah, in my mind, but clearly I know nothing. That wasn't <laughs> so. It was just like it almost felt abandoned down there. Yeah, like it I, was. But how, like what? So like you're. I don't know if you edit your Wikipedia page, but you, there's like not much on there. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I edited completely off. I took it. No, there's nothing. I don't. <laughs> like how old are you? I'm 48. Okay, so I'm okay. I'm 57. So you go back. You remember the 70s down there? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean. 
especially because that's where all the like other filmmakers and artists were. So I definitely remember the neighborhood kind of going a few blocks to this way, or there was a theater, the collective of living cinema that was on white street. Like those were all kind of happening in the, what year were you born? 72. Interesting. So your dad, both your parents are artists. Yeah. My mom was a painter, but she's really been a collaborator with my father who's been making films since the late fifties. But it was like, it's, it's a very specific type of lifestyle because it's not, these are not big pictures. No. And that, so the whole audience, their audience was in the neighborhood. I mean, that was it. It was just them. And so the screenings were happening in all those lofts, you know, like you would walk into these places and people had screens set up and they'd have a screening there. And like the, those are my earliest memories for sure. Just w- watching these films that kind of made sense to me, especially at that age, you know, like when you're four or five, you're not seeing any difference between those films and Superman cartoons. They all kind of feel like movies or, or even bigger films. We romanticize that era of art, you know, in New York and in general, yeah. right? So I guess, what do you think your father was doing? Like in terms of film, like, you know, when you grew old enough to sort of wrap your brain around that this was the nature of his art, but it was clearly not the movies that you would see in a movie theater. You know, who were his contemporaries? What was the movement? Well, I think that it was a matter of survival for him. I think definitely want to hear him talk about the 50s, especially uh, and just the kind of dearth of films and what, the, how far away the art world seemed. I mean, he was very much grew up poor, working class, and fell into the art. I mean, just seeing art. He, he, what he told me is that he was given a, a like a school card to the to Museum of Modern Art as a little kid, and then he would oh. go down there and just to kind of pass time he would wind up seeing these films, these foreign films as a kid, and just that had this huge impression. He would just be there oh. all the time. And so by the time he came out of the Coast Guard, he had an idea of something about uh, you know, art, but it was really kind of falling, falling through that, kind of learning about um, on his own, and then wind up studying with a, t- a painter named Hans Hoffman that introduced art that was no chance of a commercial life. It was just a really a matter of expressing kind of so much of the despair and so much of the politics that he was feeling. It was a way to communicate in a way, especially to himself. But what wound up happening is this, and again, this is romanticized for me because I was, you know, a little kid. So I'm Mm. now looking back and thinking about this as an amazing time. Yeah. But these it was always the same people at the at the screenings, you know. It was other fellow filmmakers. Like, what are we and talking? Like ten people, twenty? It would no, it, yeah. I think it would be twenty people. Definitely is what I remember. And and homes, it could be somewhere between ten and twenty. Um, and I remember there would be these screenings, and then there would be these conversations that would go on later and later. And then my sister Nisi and I would fall asleep with the other little kids and. At a certain point, these would turn into big shouting matches over films because this was this was the pay at the end of the day, like the conversation, the kind of, right. uh, that's the, that's all there was. There wasn't anything. There was no such thing of like anything more than that. Was anybody writing on the films on that community of people? Yeah. Jonas Mikas was at that time writing for the New York times and he was really 
put shining a light and there's other writers for sure that were doing that and saying that there's something important going on here but it was very very obviously far away from what warhol was doing which was by kind of the closest kind of commercial version of that world there was a there was an intersection but the intentions were very very different and the worlds were very different like the the whole models and drugs and all that stuff could be farther away from what my father and those people, I think, especially my father was interested in, he just was, I think seeing that type of money and seeing that type of money wasted was so insulting to him. And for him, it was really a choice between um, doing everything he can to not get a normal job and just survive doing the work that he felt like was essential for him. Well, how did they do that? Well, ultimately to raise my sister and I, he became, he taught film at SUNY Binghamton. And that was kind of an only could have happened. He could only have gone hired in the late sixties because he had no college education. I mean, barely graduated high school. So there was like that one sliver in society where you could hire somebody to start right. a film department. Um, and then other than that, it was just very, very cheap living. I mean, I can't even tell you how cheap New York City was a totally different thing. So the it wasn't, how am I going to pay this rent? I mean, rent on our place, I think it was 35 bucks a month when I moved in. Get out so, of here. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what that whole neighborhood was. It wasn't, you'd walk into these huge places and you never think to yourself like, wow, how much are they paying for this? It was right. just, that was normal. It was like just above squatting or was it comfortable? Uh, when my mom met my dad, he had he definitely had no windows, like no <laughs> no windows. I think it was just like plastic. And I mean, there, he, she, she civilized him to a degree, but that stuff was so uh, unimportant to him and, and not very important to her until I think, you know, kids start happening and then you start kind of looking ahead. What kind of paintings did she do? Abstracts or? Yeah, yeah. And believe it or not, my mom um, went to RISD and uh, she started painting abstract paintings while she was there. And the teachers felt like she should be doing much more commercial work. So they called her parents in and they told her, told, uh, told them, listen, if uh, your daughter doesn't start painting more commercial works, we're going to kick her out. And her parents were completely excited by that day idea they just said yes kick her out kick her out because this is they were totally did not want her to do this so they did they kicked her out um and she really just went um if anything went farther into that direction and that's how my parents met too my dad was just painting on the beach in provincetown uh and uh she saw him and i think that the fact that he was supposed to be like selling these paintings were so crazy because nobody would ever <laughs> buy them but she loved them immediately and that's kind of how their romance began uh it's heartbreaking somehow you know it's beautiful but there's something painful about the commitment to oh, art yeah. over commerce and art over there's almost like uh an intention to it that like you know we don't want that kind of attention yeah, definitely. There was a whole side of that, the, the commercial side of it, that was so repulsive 
and so other and so outside of who they'd want to become and who they'd what they'd want to contribute while they're here and they've stayed in that oh yeah yeah my dad's <laughs> making he's 87 now and my mom and they're just that's what they do and i would say first and foremost my dad makes his films for my mom you know she's the eyes that he trusts you know like that's the person says oh yeah there's something there there's something not and does anyone it, else see them at this point they do. They do. And if anything, there's a, probably like a bigger audience in a lot of ways because, you know, the, the young kids that are finding these and seeing, I think, kind of maybe it's... Uh, Ken Jacobs. That are, yeah, Ken, they, they are finding them. And I've been working with Kino on a, like a, a big kind of box set that will come out soon. And people oh, really? are finding them. And, you know, I, I would just say the other thing about these screenings, because... It's completely true. Like I, so many screenings as a kid, I just remember the theater being emptied out. Like especially if we're going to a, outside of that world, right? Like a screening yeah. at the MoMA, right? Just that sound of chairs going flap, 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 one after another. You know, and I would just see the place, but there would always be, besides the people that already were there and into that work, there'd be one or two people left over at the end of the screening that would go up to my dad and look at him, like oh, I thought I was completely alone until this moment. And I remembered that. And that's that stayed with me, you know? Like, that was something that I think when the kind of solitude and the pain of that, which is apparent, like, it's definitely not an easy life to choose, that's something that always stayed with me. The one guy that really connected. Yeah, that goes up and go, oh, I did not know this was possible. And I saw that over and over. Like, cause I, I imagine like growing up with that, like, like the, like I, I just saw the title star spangled to death. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I kind of like, all right, I could, I can sort of wrap my brain ar around the, the period and what it probably was about, but it was a big epic movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he spent, and that was one that he actually, I mean, that's one that he started before uh, my sister and I were born and then finished after he retired. So, like he had to start it, f teach for 30 years. Computers had to happen so he could actually finish it very cheaply because he didn't have the money to How do it. How long of it? It's like, a, was it an epic? Yeah, it's about six and a half hours. And is it's, it, it really is. I mean, it's his view of this country and it's the view of definitely where this country is now. I mean, he started it back then, but it completely understood where we're heading. And that's the, I mean, where we are now is something that he's been, and both of them have been talking about since I've been a little kid. Like this has been a clear, this whole, this whole insanity has been really clearly where things have been going for my whole lifetime to them. And those are the conversations they had with other filmmakers. And that was, you know, what they were trying to to show the world or what they were reacting to by being committed to expression over commerce. There's that. But also, like, I, I don't think like the art of it was really important. Like, can is there another way of seeing it? You know, I, I got to study with Stan Brakhage, who's another like very big sure. heavyweight in that world. Where right? did he teach? And in Boulder, so I went up there just for a summer course. He took it to he, just he to teach. You, I mean, you would think like you know, like did Brackage know your old man? He must have. Oh yeah, they were super close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you so, went no, to I, you went and studied with your your dad's pal, the other guy yeah, who makes he movies. He taught this class that was kind of infamous called Sex, Death, and Cinema. 
Uh-huh. Right? And like I and I was already studying film. It was an amazing. I mean, and the whole thing that I kind of take away from at least what stands big objective was was to go back to that place when you're a kid before you get late, you know, before you're told that grass is green and the sky is blue, like what is happening in the grass? What is actually making up those colors? Like how do we go back before we get so close-minded and just dismiss things, the beautiful, amazing things that are happening. And so the art side of what they were trying to do and how to kind of take things back from not only like a financial place yeah but and just an an internal connection was i think just as essential as the politics i mean that that is political right just to be so that was okay so those were really the two schools you're talking about because like in brackage my experience when i had the experience when i was open-minded enough to understand you know what was happening in the legacy of brackage where you know you're watching uh, a, a cinematic experience that could just be, you know, colors. It could just be uh, just poetic, you know, kind of uh, f- framing of of things that you can't even identify necessarily. Like there's an experience to watching the way those things flow together. That is not. It's not verbal necessarily. It's not narrative certainly, and it's uh, yeah. it, it's something about using the movement of the medium to to express something. Uh, you know, primal or poetic, whereas the other side of uh, art movies, not art movies, but film as art in the purest sense, I guess, you know, mm. would be more of an intellectual exercise. And I would say, if anything, where my father's work has kind of returned much more to painting, using his paintings, using Im- abstract images and learning how to, and, and showing like depth, even with 2D images. So he's, the, the work is is extremely abstract now. It's not like shooting, like in the beginning, it was definitely shooting friends, doing different things and um, actually shooting film. But now, especially with computers, it's been so much about really the bringing paintings to life in the way that he feels them and sees them. And so huh. they connected in that way, you know, they, I did, I mean, that was the other thing about them. Like I just, the conversations was pretty much every day between them on the phone, you know, like they would, Stan would be calling all the time. Oh really? Would talk. Yeah. This was like, again, like this is the pay is each right, other. This, you know? Right. This is a life, the life of an artist, because like, you know, there's nothing more disturbing than the art world really. In, in terms of of you know the business of art, oh, of course, you know which I knew nothing about, you know yeah. until you know I dated a painter and I was like, oh my god, this is like obscene. I can imagine. I, I don't know that world, but I know that like with my dad, like he, him and my mom started this theater here in the East Village called the Millennium. Well, it's gone now from there. And my dad would sometimes show Warhol's films who's the films he cared about and he'd wind up sitting there he'd be proje- he's a proje- he was projecting them and he he told me about talking to Warhol about the whatever film he was showing and that he was so touched that my dad had watched it because everybody that would come to his screenings would stay in the hallway like nobody yeah. would actually sit in the theater yeah was, this was just a party outside in the lobby but nobody would venture in and actually 
take like respond to the work itself. Yeah. You know? And so that was like the closest that he got to that side of things. And, um, by complimenting Warhol and showing Warhol's movies. Uh, just, and well, j- just seeing how empty, what the, you know, the, the, the relationship between that type of audience and right. that work was at least right. at that point. So, when do you decide that you're going to approach film? I mean, it seems like, you know, it was inevitable on some level. You were either going to be an artist or, or run far from it, you know, oh, but yeah. it, I mean, they gave me this name so that I, there was just no chances of going into politics or into a synagogue. You know, that was like definitely the <laughs> idea between behind uh, Azazel was they, they they were always like you know you could do whatever you want but they kind of immediately <laughs> limited. What does Azazel mean? Azazel is a is a fallen angel's name. Oh. And my parents' idea, who Azazel fell for good reasons because he disobeyed God, but it's uh it's you know they have very very strong feelings against religion and i mean the amazing thing with azazel that i didn't fully understand until i got older was like if you meet an israeli and you say that you met azazel they won't believe it because that just like they say go to hell they say go to azazel all the time like that's their curse word like azazel yeah you try that out and they will say no you never met like they they it seems impossible that someone would name their child that yeah yeah it's just not like what's done (laughs) and uh actually i had to uh when i was like 20 something i had to go to i went to israel once in my life for uh, like a thing with mtv that i was working on and uh even when i got to the airport they just did not want to let me on the plane they just couldn't get over they looked at my passport and they were like this is not your name this can't be (laughs) Uh, and they kept calling people over and kept they, they'd ask me the same question. So Azazel's your name. Did you give yourself name, your name? No. Your parents gave you. Yes. Your parents are Jewish. Yes. Azazel's not your name. We're like over and over and over and over and over again. And then I get over there, you know, and like the um, same thing. I just keep introducing myself and like the kids, lo- you know, the young people like loved it. They thought I was on some death metal thing, yeah, yeah. you know, right, but right, right, right. it was. So it's a demon name. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, but uh, yeah, so they, they were definitely like, the world is yours. But um, at the same time, um, they gave me this name that I definitely felt like I was art was what I was supposed to be doing. But I thought cartooning was what I, I, th- I really loved underground comic books. Like Spiegelman, who were your guys? Yeah, um, definitely. And Charles Burns, all, all those people. Oh, that Burns. Kind of How loved. great is Burns? The Amazing. Best. He's and I've been, and Spiegelman was also a student of my father, so I knew. And I knew that he had to know. Your dad had to know Spiegelman. Yeah, so he was. A, he, he studied with my dad, and they've been very, very, very tight. Um, Is he still for, smoking those camels? He's on e-cigarettes. We're, oh, now okay. Art and I are been writing something. We're now we're collaborating on something. Oh, really? Yeah, we've been working. We've been. Uh, How's he doing? Writing, he's doing good. I mean, he's. I mean, pulling his hair out because of this. What's going on in the world as well? Right. I mean. This is like every nightmare that uh, I think yeah. has been on their mind for years. Um, so everybody's, but he's surviving. He's managing, yeah. and it's been great to 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 work with him so closely. And what are you working on? It's definitely it's a TV thing. It's something that we've been developed. We've been developing with Neil Gaiman for a while now. 
Oh, but Neil Gaiman too. That's interesting. You, Spiegelman, and Neil. Yeah, yeah, and it's wow. been yeah, it's been cool, and it's kind of really kind of talking about when art was a uh, was a threat, when art was still deemed a real threat. It's a documentary series, or it's just no, that's that sort of the be, under. It'll be a narrative, but it's really fantastical. It's kind of far out there. It's very, very. Um, if, yeah, it's it's wild. If we're able to do it, I think it will be something special. When art was a threat, when do you what do you think was the last piece of art that was a threat? When do you see that at time? What was that time? Oh well, look. I mean, for, for sure, if we think about comic books burnings, and we think about Little Richard, or Little Richard, you know, with yeah. Tutti Frutti, and right. I mean, like, there's they constantly. Uh, I think there's examples throughout. Right here is where we think of like, oh, this is actually something that people don't they hadn't figured out how to market yet and right and it ruptured it, the culture and then yeah. it was appropriated exactly this smells like teen spirit situation so you wanted to get into graphic art i don't know i don't know how thoroughly i thought about this but i definitely was a you know i wasn't a good uh, student I, I mean i was uh like i was actually pretty good i mean in its own way i was i was a's and f's you know i was yeah. going to high school here in the city and um things that i was interested in like art and history i would do well in what what generation are you are you like were the beastie boys your age or are they my age i think they're my age beastie boys were yeah were a bit older i definitely liked them growing up um but who was my generation? I mean, I had this kind of strange experience that I got to, uh, I had, my sister was four years older. And uh, because of that, I was able to get into a lot of punk and stuff quite early. Like I got to, my, my first show was going to see The Clash with her in 82. Oh, and wow. that was something that kind of completely changed my life. And that yeah. got me, yeah, yeah. Like I came back a completely different kid. You know, I was nine years old and, that set my whole path forward. The Clash did. Oh, completely. I mean, yeah, we went again, we were out and my dad was teaching that summer out in Boulder with Stan. They were doing like, so Stan had, had asked him to come out. So we all were out there and we'd go out there for each summer, like between 80, 81, 82. And The Clash came through and it was just one of those things, you know, like it was a, uh, yeah. they were playing at Red Rocks and- um, Red Rocks, the, and that's already mystical, right? Oh, the whole thing was, yeah. uh, you know, I was, it was weird. I was in the car with my, with my, my mom and my sister and they're like, okay, so Anissi's going to see the clash. And so tickets were nine bucks. So we're going to give you $9 worth of quarters so you can go to the arcade. And I just kind of threw out this thing, like being a little snotty brother saying, oh, why can't I go see the clash? And my sister reacted so quickly. and was like, no, 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 no. That I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely, you know? <laughs> um, and so my dad had two students, Steve and Julia, that were big Clash fans. And so they wound up taking me and my sister. They must have been about 20. And we went there the day before and slept out, you know, slept out, like waiting and on the steps. And that was like, you know, every I can remember that so well. I mean, the, the first time really smelling weed and just wondering, like, what that is yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember at some point, like, there's a conversation with, we were really, we were first one so there was a whole line of people sleeping on these stone stairs at some point like somebody put their hands over my ears and you know you just start here you start really listening and it was somebody a, a, somebody was offering a blowjob 
to get in earlier. And I was like, a blow job? Like, what kind of job is that? You know, like I was trying to figure out what kind of job. I knew it was something that would get somebody in something earlier. Who was offering but, you know, who a blow job? Yeah, it's, I think somebody next to us was offering the security guard. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then I remember like we got in, you know, first thing at 9, 10 a.m. And then suddenly you're waiting hours and hours in the sun for this this concert to start. And so because I had brought all these mad magazines with me, I wound up being kind of like really popular, you know, in the way that I could just pass out and wind up and then kind of getting passed around and um, and just loving it, you know, just seeing this whole other world open up. And then by the time the show started, we were so up close, so I mean, it, the, it was it was that sense that I kind of I mean, this is, again, like in retrospect, but obviously like seeing this band come out that looks like an army is so impressive for like a little boy and the Mohawks yeah. and all that shit. But also just seeing the love that was coming towards this, especially coming from the world that my dad was in was just like, oh, wow, this is this felt just as pure. And it was also being loved a thousand times more. And it just had such an impression, you know, some skinhead put me on their shoulder. And so I just was about a foot away from Strummer uh, while he sang. And uh, I definitely knew like something really significant happened. And then my parents were like, I came back just a different kid. And that became like, that set me. Oh yeah, yeah, that set me. Like I'm, I'm on an insane level with them to this day. I'm just like, you know. The clash drummers and underwear size, you know, like I'm crazy, crazy. How did how did it change your approach to life? I mean, what was it that changed? First, first and foremost, it's like the energy from the music gave me and has continued to give me some kind of courage in terms of pursuing my own path. And then obviously kind of getting so into it, you're hearing these words and you're hearing these interviews and you're hearing somebody being so direct again, kind of going back to this idea. I know that the, one of the things about the clash is just kind of how hypocritical or contradictory they were, but to hear them talk about not pursuing money, but pursuing art and pursuing a message completely connected to the world that I was coming from. Right. Um, and it was a different type of message. It wasn't your parents' yeah. message. It wasn't them and their friends arguing about art. It wasn't, it was more like it was visceral in a way that was probably different. It was. And at the same time, it was uh, like the blowback that they would always get, you know, for changing and trying all these different things. And co the combination of uh, influences were something that they would always get a lot of shit for. I mean, now they're looked at back in this kind of legendary status, but that wasn't the case for so long. And that definitely has been the thing for me in my own films of trying to bring in different influences and see what I can do different from it and how do they combine and what, where is that clash in my own work? What kind of sparks comes out of that? So I, I always keep going back to different music of theirs to help guide me in terms of going, okay, this is something, um, this is my interest and that pushes me in these directions. Definitely in the idea that like with the, every film that I make, I always try to go in the opposite direction from yeah. the last film and try to do something really, really different and something. And I, I feel like that definitely comes from the Clash's influence. So when did you start actively pursuing film? I mean, how old were you? 
so I, I picked up, the, I mean, one of the amazing things was like, you know, I grew up really rich in a certain way, not financially, but there was always cameras and there was thing, the books. So there was so much to grab around. So I wound up picking up a camera around senior year of high school, Super 8 camera and shooting something and liking how it came out. And then when it t- came time to applying to schools, I applied to SUNY Purchase. I applied to a bunch of art schools and Cooper Union and I didn't get in but I wound up being invited to the film department at SUNY Purchase. And that, what I was thinking, okay, I'm gonna go here for one year and, uh, and then we'll see about reapplying to Cooper Union. But then immediately kind of going to Purchase, especially that school at that time asking, which were so good at asking of you like, okay, do you have something to say? Do you have something you want to say? If not, get out of here. And the more that they asked of me, the more I got into film. And it was also the first time I was starting to see independent film. Like I, I just didn't really understand that there was a place in between Hollywood films and what my father did until I got to purchase and start seeing how Harley and Jarmish and all these people. And oh, right. Going yeah, yeah. Like, oh, wow. Okay. There's a space right in between. And that, that's the direction I want to go. And how, what were the conversations like with your old man when you started pursuing it? You know, they weren't like, it's not supportive in the way like, oh, whatever you do, we like. Um, But they responded to the work I was doing and even the conversations, even the films that I started making that they had issues with, they were real conversations that they took seriously. It wasn't this thing where they were going like, oh, you you have it or you don't have it. It was just like, okay, this, yeah, there's something here or I have issues with this. They were, I mean, I, I can't, like my parents just didn't lie about things like how they felt about things that's just not what they did so right. they were very honest about it but they took it seriously and i i also was confident about what i was making you know i started purchase i started gaining real confidence and feeling like okay this is whatever it's giving me is feeling like worth it and it's asking more and more and exciting me so you did a, a bunch of short films first yeah, exactly. And then um, I graduated with my senior film, which was called Kirk and Carrie, and uh, wound up trying to figure out how to make a, a feature film. And definitely New York City at that point was changing as well. And the you know financially, it was becoming a totally different type of city. But that was the next thing. And I, I really hadn't thought about what kind of feature films, but it was, it was very much kind of just seeing one foot in front of the other. And I was also coming out in this certain era of New York City films that everything felt possible. It felt so distant, different, so far away from anything about awards or money or even right. be making money. It felt so far away. So yeah, so that 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 wasn't being taught yet. The business of films. No, no, there was nothing about business about film. There was no, no conversation. And who about were that. you kind of looking towards, you know, when you started? Like, what were the defining movies for you? Like that were coming out during that particular time. Any time. I mean, like you, you know, it's like I've been watching a lot of movies lately that I've never seen before. You know, and I know people talk a lot about the seventies or this or that, but. But there's definitely movies that were definitely not on my radar at all, and I'm profoundly moved by them as you know, even as I get older. It's like it's like music. There's never there's no end to the number of movies out there, and you know, so many people land on the same dozen movies in terms of being influential. Just, but there's definitely you must have movies that 
you not unlike the clash that you saw and you're like holy fuck oh yeah i, I worked at this uh, movie theater where i was a projectionist and popcorn maker and everything on van damme street called la cinematograph right it was with me and jonah kaplan my roommate who you know because he made stalker guilt syndrome oh my god jonah kaplan made the stalker guilt syndrome that i starred in i don't know how he got me i guess he was a fan of my comedy yeah and when i saw it i was like oh there's there's the guy from sidewalk cafe you know because i'd walk by you (laughs) 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 and i was like oh and i told that to jonah i was like yeah i know i how's that guy doing I think he's well. I hope he's well. I mean, we don't see each other that much, but you know, he works at Vice and doing Vice News, and he's won a bunch of Emmys. And I think he's doing. He's got oh, a really? Family. Yeah. Well, that's good. He really. Yeah. It worked out. He found a way. Yeah, yeah, he did. And uh, and we worked together one summer at this movie theater, that was an independent movie theater that we wound up having this retrospective of Cassavetes, and each week somebody would come in to introduce the films. So, and it was always like, it was Ben Gazzard one week, then Seymour Cassell and Gina Rowlands, you know, like every week. And I did not know these movies. I did not, I just didn't know them. And uh, we had the keys too. So we could project these films after everybody was gone and just sit there. And so Joan and I and other people from my class and purchase would go and watch these films late into the night and just with my mouth open. Uh, obviously I know this is like, clearly a uh, an understood genius but for me the first time seeing those films and especially that time i mean i can't even underestimate the amount of the effect that it had to see that kind of level of truth in film yeah i just yeah i just rewatched um woman under the influence like a few weeks ago it just stays alive these films all stay stay alive that's a good way to describe it they stay alive yeah, and I, I mean, and again, I think Hal Ashby for me is somebody that I always go back to. Oh um, yeah, and and Altman is somebody like these are people that whose films play in a loop in my head. And then there's certain films good. like, yeah. you know, uh, I've been since a little, you know, maybe since I saw I saw King of Comedy in the theater when it came out. But that's a film that I go back to all the time, every couple of years, and go. How is this film possible? It just seems. Oh yeah. It just seems magic. Yeah. Yeah. So, th- there are films that definitely have had life-changing influences, and in that I keep thinking about, and never trying to go. Okay, can I make a film like that? But definitely have a. I want to be in conversation with them with the movies that I make. I want those films to answer and at least thank them for giving me what I feel like they've given to me in my life. Yeah, I was obsessed with McCabe and Mrs. Miller for two decades. Yeah, well, some of these films just seem impossible. But, I mean, for me, Popeye is the one that, like, I go back to Popeye all the time. It just seems like that type of commitment to that world, um, taking it that seriously and that playfully, like, that, that juxtaposition, again, going back to The Clash, like, that mixture for me is like everything that I want in, in the films that I make. Interesting. That's the one Popeye because of the, the commitment to the conceit of it. Cause it's, it's so fantastical and it's so much about what this world is. It's so, I, I, I recognize that world, even though it's completely not ours. Huh? Do you think that had something to do with your connection with, with comics? 
Well, I, I think so. I mean, I think so. I've been thinking about like one of the things that I would, I would say has also been a huge influence to me on me has been radio. Like I would go to bed listening to old radio shows since I was a little kid. So yeah. that was a huge connection that goes kind of straight into comic books. Cause that's kind of how, how many, so many of those artists, those kind of golden age of the EC artists were working from and inspired by and bring images, even no matter how, and those, those radio shows are so, so wild and so surreal yeah. in their own ways. Right. And it lends itself straight into so much of the radio that I still listen to that I think has just as much of an influence like Joe Frank or right. um, Gene Shepard, like that, that mad magazine feel to things. Um, that was the I other thing that, that was the other template for your brain, mad yeah, magazine. That kind of a way of seeing the world. And that really is like, I know I'm, I'm starting to sound insane about the clash, but like the Mad Magazine view of the world is very much kind of, I think, goes straight into Strummer's view. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Mad Magazine. If you were a Mad Magazine kid, it was just like that. It was like the secret world. It was like yeah. it was our entry into the way grownups think. Yeah, and it made everything that was popular just not cool at all. Like you're looking at cool kids, then they're not cool to you anymore. Like anything that's that seemed like was this thing that you're supposed to want is suddenly you had eyes on how ridiculous and how silly. Yeah, it planted the seeds of rebellion. Absolutely. But Completely. like, but like Popeye aesthetically, like you know where you're at now. We should talk about the last couple movies and the evolution of your particular point of view. But like. Like I watched a Taika Waititi movie recently, The uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, and you know his sensibility is kind of amazing. Like, and you know he directed the Thor movie. Would you do a comic book movie? If I could make part of the story, like the uh, the, the inventors and creators got completely fucked and uncredited. Like, if that that could be part of the story, maybe. Like, I'd want that to be part of the, Like, I don't know. I mean, that's not... I don't know anything really about those films. That's not the films I gravitate towards. Me I do kind of know a lot about where that world comes from. And those stories of, like, the pain and, like, the, the immigrant story of some of those artists and how the, the, the bitter Jews at the, at the heart yes, of the myth. Exactly. That's interesting to me. And I'd want that to be somehow addressed. Like, I don't know how you can not tell those stories without kind of seeing the kind of fucked up past that they're, they're based on. No one talks about that. An amazing past. Like these, these people were trying to uh, fight Hitler with their work with these superheroes um, in their own way. And they're coming from just complete poverty and there were the chances of becoming rich wasn't possible. So all that, I, this is to say like, no, like the superhero, I just don't really know enough. I did get to see Thor because I saw something about the advertising made me think of, Oh, this is a person that likes mad magazine. And that's true. Like I found the, I found that film really wonderful. Like, and I found it very playful. Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's something that I could do, but I, I found it. I like that anarchy that it had. Like, and he clearly was able to make the film personal. And it feels like a, he has a strong point of view throughout. He's an interesting filmmaker. He's funny. Yeah. But I don't know. Like, that's not, 
I couldn't say that I would know enough. And also I think with those superhero films, I feel like you better come correct and serve their fans. Like those fans know that world better than anybody. And, so, and they're paying a lot of money to be there. So why wouldn't you completely satisfy yeah. everything and right like it's like if somebody made a film on the clash and i would i would just look at what everything was wrong you know like yeah. I, would, I would know that maybe so you should make should... the uh, the clash superhero movie yeah <laughs> <laughs> well yeah but i mean you know what i mean like they they should be spoken to on the level that they are at and that wouldn't be something I could even begin to dream of doing. These well, are people nice. that live and breathe these comic books. They, you don't want to piss them off. They're 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 oh, ready no. to get pissed no. off, dude. Yeah, I and but I I couldn't say that that's like the thing that I'm I know much about. Or... Right. Well, now okay. So the last few movies, like when you talk about the evolution of, because like I'll, let's just. It, like Terry is that the that that sort of personal story about that kid, and then the lovers is something. The the lovers is sort of some sort of I don't know stylistically. It's just very interesting contained tension of of a uh, of a strange evolution of a romance, you know, with these affairs and like you yeah. know. But it it seems like there's a, the there's this, a real human story in there, but there there seems to be parameters to it that it were very specific that you were working within. Do you, you know what I mean? It's completely contained. No, it was really I was I was using whatever limitations and wanted to use with the limitations of it going. But it's a choice. It was, but it was also a way that I knew I could make that film. Like I wrote something to be small with few actors. It's where I wanted to be, and it's what I felt like what I needed to tell at that point. It's a great movie and it's great. I mean, I love those, those actors and I yeah, hadn't seen Deborah Winger in a long time. And Tracy and I have become friends. I texted him yesterday about this movie cause he's in it. Yeah. And I said, yeah. he did a great job, but, Good. but I, the French exit, I, I, I really liked, but it, it, it is, I guess, I guess what I'm looking for is like, you know, and we're talking about these art films and paintings and about all the things we're talking about is that you have, again, this strange collection that seems to get bigger and bigger of humans, and there, there's the the conceit to the movie is is sort of like a, it's it's almost like an uh, an, an an upper class fable, um, in in a way, and it's not like a necessarily, uh, it's not that I've seen the story played out, but the you know the but but it seems familiar to me, but you have you know Michelle Pfeiffer who is spectacular. And I haven't seen her in a long time, and she's doing something she's never done before. And you got that kid, uh, Hedges. What's his first name? Lucas. Who's like kind of a brilliant guy, yeah. brilliant actor. But like, I guess my question is around it and how it kind of unfolds is, you know, why why this particular movie? You go from the lovers, like what 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 was the evolution from the lovers to this? What were you trying to challenge yourself with? Well, definitely. I liked that it was took place instead of creating the world in like, let's say in the lovers was inside this, all this middle-class home. Right. This was creating a world outside of the home. These are people that are leaving their home and it's expanding. And it's, it was, it was something that was intimidating and it was a place that I wanted to go to. Like I, I read, and I don't overthink, like I read Patrick DeWitt's novel, French Exit, who, and, and immediately it was on instinct that I was like, okay, this is what I, where, where I want to go. And then you kind of ask these questions of where, what, why is this personal to me? 
what is this connection as you're going along. But I think in retrospect, there's so much that I like about the kind of like take it or leave it or just fuck you attitude that Francis has that I would like to have in my own life that I wanted to be around, which was like, and I like the idea of telling a story, like not a quote unquote important story. It's not like a life and death story. It's life and eventual death. And, and that I relate to, like, it's not an underdog story. It's not, um, it's not somebody overcoming great obstacles in their life. But it is, it, I think, something, oh, a really warm, funny world and interesting and um, serious and somber and all these different tones that I wanted to be around. And I felt like it could also bring me to get to work with the people that I wound up working with, that the, people, the actors that would be attracted to doing this are exactly that type of actors that I really would like to, to get a chance to work with. And that began with like Michelle, you know, like that, that whole experience of then going to cast, going to Michelle and Tracy and Lucas and Imogen, like suddenly this is the thing that I dream of doing, you know? And so that's, I think I saw that as a possibility with a story. Did their interest um, enable you to do the movie? Oh, completely. Like, you know, I was working in both ways. I was working on getting the financing together and the financing would be together in terms of like who the cast wound up being but then like there, there was definitely no chance of making the film I, I i don't know if there's no chance but it became very very clear like this was the path of making this film and this was the right path i, I was because the money came from different places and came from abroad right it's a canadian irish co-production i was able to have final cut on the film and so that was a thing that was on top of everything was like, okay, how do I make sure that this isn't the film that I want to make? Because there's a really different, very kind of on the surface reading, I think, of the, of the book that you could have made that film, like, and it's, it's, which could have been a fine film, but it's not the film I wanted to see, you know, something maybe more, I don't know if it's whimsical or whatever, but less strange. And I really like the strangeness of these people on this world and uh, and wanted to embrace that in my own way. Yeah, and I thought that that was sort of the amazing thing about it. And I guess the the guy who wrote the book wrote the screenplay. Now, did yeah. you have, were you part of that process? Yeah, so Patrick, to a, he wrote Terry. And for whatever reason, like Terry brought us very close, but then in the past bunch of years now, he's somebody that we, we speak every day, right? Like we just, check in a lot of times it's just the bullshit about random stuff but yeah sometimes it's more heavy but we for whatever reason we really do kind of call each other every day somebody calls and checks in and i get to hear a little bit of what he's working on and i talk about what i'm working on but it doesn't mean that i get to read sometimes before books are completely finished and so i read this in a manuscript form and um, called them up and said like i'd like to make this into a film and so that conversation of how can we turn this into a script happened even before the book was finished. And then he would come over to New York or wherever I was and we'd work together and I'd send him off on his way. And then that kind of work on the script kept on going on. Once Michelle came on and Lucas, like when we, we had the, they, we really embraced the book as much as we could. And so we'd go through the book, certain things that were missing or certain things that we felt could have been clarified even more. We'd go back to Patrick and see if we can, you know, 
shift and that would that happened i think even sometimes during the shooting so you you make a movie where it's going to exist not unlike your your father's movies where you know they they are these singular things and you know whether they please everybody is not really the issue but do they stand on their own as as a as a piece of, of a, as a finished piece of work but there's something that sneaks up on you about this movie like there's these questions where you're like why are they all staying at this apartment you know and i don't know <laughs> And I don't know why, but you know, at some point you made a decision, Patrick made a decision that nobody leaves the apartment. Everyone's going to be sleeping at this apartment at some point. Why? Yeah. I don't know. Do you? I, I, in my own mind, and again, this is just my own answer, but I think that they find something, it's the most interesting place to be. Hmm. You know, I think that's what, I think of these people, what's interesting about all these characters is that they all are walking their own paths. And I think that they feel like they're the only ones. Um, Interesting. And then they find each other and they right. find this is the place that I want to be. And it just seems like you just assume to be there. Um, that just, that makes sense to me in an illogical way. It also seems like at the very base of it, like, yeah. But you're willing, but it's, you had that conversation. Yeah, definitely. I, de I had that conversation, but also it wasn't questioned so much of going why. It was also creating a situation where you'd where these characters would want to be there. It was a place, like it was where yeah. the activity was going. It's where the connection was. Yeah, I understand that, and, and I, you know, and I, you know, it's not your job to ask why. This is just the way this is. Yeah, and then you know the questions are asked by others later. Yeah, but trying to balance these kind of things that are sane or insane is what we're doing all day long in our own lives. Like things that just don't make sense. And how do we put this into one place, right? We go right. through our Instagram and we go, oh, that's horrible. That happened. Oh, that's amazing. There's a cat. This We go back and forth and it all becomes one. And we we just bottle this up into the same place and we make sense of it. Right. And so I feel like that's the same thing with these films for me, at least. It just, they, they have a logic to me and, and they have a logic also overall as a full thing where sometimes within a scene, and I especially feel this way with French exit, there's things that happen all throughout the film that's not necessarily connected to the very next thing you're going to see. But when the film is finished as a whole, if, if you've, if it's your type of thing, if you, if it's, you know, vibe with you right. that you're going to see it as a full piece. And I know it's not for everybody. Like I, I understand that when I'm making these films that there's, that's not the idea. It's like, I, I want it to find its audience, but I also know it's a really particular story. And right. You know, like a filmmaker, you're kind of half in the room all the time. You're looking at story all the time. You're like, Oh, how could I take this in? How could this be mine? How can I, you're not fully, there to the way that when you're working with an actor and you see them surrounded by all these people in these clothes you know on whatever time and they become completely present it seems impossible it just seems like magic it's just amazing to me how and i and it forced me to become completely present it's the only time when i'm making a film where i'm not thinking about 
emails or anything. Oh yeah, else when you go on. when you say action, the, it's mad. It's the whole. It, it changes time. It does, but not all the time. Like I, and it doesn't happen sometimes, right? You're watching films or you're on a set and things are just dead, and yeah. you're going, "How can I get present? And how can I be there?" And when it does happen, and when you see, especially with like the actors that I wound up working with, French Exit, and it just happened every day, all the time, where suddenly it's action and they are there in that moment. And then I'm in the edit room and I'm seeing all these choices that there's no way I could have seen that they're all making and they're all in tune with themselves and with each other. Like That's a great moment, right? It's the, it's the, it's what it's all about for me. <laughs> that's, that's it. It seems that's when you feel like, okay, with or without me, this film will walk on its own. And, and it'd been so long since we'd seen Michelle. What, what were, what were those initial conversations about? Was she nervous? She says she was, I was very nervous. I mean, look, she had a, a, completely different way of working than I had worked before. And I remember like Tracy Letts on a lover, he called me on it, right? Where he'd go, he'd ask me a question and I'd answer him with a question. And he'd go, oh, I know what you're doing. Like you, 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 you put a question to all my questions. And I was like, yeah, you know, cause then together we would work on figuring out the answer and that would become his uh -huh. answer. Uh -huh. And it seemed like a technique. It seemed like my technique. Right. And, uh, Michelle wasn't playing with that at all. Like I would kind of, she'd ask me a question and I would ask her a question. Being, what? Like, no, like, <laughs> what do you think? And, and uh, I realized that she wasn't asking me like, what do I think so that she could think it, but what do I think about this? And like, she expected me to have thought of an, of something about it. And it forced me to go back to my home and to write out every question that I could think of and answer them for myself. And I always thought this was like a precious thing that you can't touch. You can't come up with these answers. This right. is supposed to be alive. Right. And it turns out that that for me was just me being kind of cowardly. Like I liked having these things to to ask myself. Interesting. So it was it was sort of like your idea of what that was was a cop out. Yeah. Ultimately, I think that it was a it was a it was a it was lazy. Right. But it was also a way to protect yourself from uh, uh, a sense of failure in a way that like if if you just like let it go, oh, like, yeah. I'm not going to answer these questions. And then if something yeah. great happens, you're like amazing. But if you got the questions answered and you can't manifest, then you're like, ah, fuck. You're right. You know, and when I went to AFI, we had to take an acting class and I was getting directed by an, a and I'm a terrible actor. Like I know. I did. They, I know that I'm not an actor, but yeah. I was doing a scene and then I asked the, the director something and they started bullshitting me. And I was like, oh shit, actors can see this vantage point. You can really see bullshit. It's so clear. <laughs> like I have to remember to say, I don't know from here on. Cause that's what it meant so much more to me than somebody just trying to wing it. And so yeah. that was like the way that would go. Like if I don't have that answer, I don't know. That's a good question. Blah, 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 blah. Let's go with this. But didn't mean, but ultimately that wound up me kind of not preparing in a way that I would like to, that I learned that, oh, I can without actually touching this thing that I thought was like a precious. Right. Uh, what Tracy calls pixie dust, you know, like, which is not real. He's like, you know, he, I remember him saying that about the, the, his 
connection with Deborah Winger, uh, you know, in, in The Lovers. And he's like, it's not pixie dust. It's like, it's what we do. It's work. Like, that's, that's <laughs> what acting is. And uh, it, <laughs> yeah. it took me a bit to learn. He's one of those guys, man. He's like, you know, he's he's a, he's a, he's got a work ethic. He's like, this is the this is the craft we've been doing it all our lives. Yeah, and you know, yeah. we turn it on and off. We've we've prepared and we work. Yeah. And that voice you're doing is the voice I hear in my head still. And so when I read Tracy's Small voice? Frank, yeah, I, when I saw like that's why he was Small Frank. I read and I heard this voice of this guy that kind of had a very this is the way that I'm doing things. And all I could hear was his voice. So that was an easy call yeah. to go Tracy. Hey, would you voice? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because your, your, your voice is already playing in my head. Yeah. I thought you did a great job, man. And, and it's Thank good you seeing so you again. Yeah. I hope to hope one of these days in person. Yeah. We can hang out again. And like, you've been healthy. Did you get the COVID or no? No, I didn't. And um, I'm trying not too. I was able to get my parents their first shot a couple okay. weeks ago, and uh, they've That's come good. back. Yeah, so I mean, they'll be going for their second one pretty soon. So, yeah, it's just um, you know, plugging along. Things, yeah, trying. Yeah. Trying. Well, it's great to see you, man, and I love the movie. And uh, it was nice Thank talking you so much. to you. This means a lot to me. All right, buddy. I'll see you soon. See ya. Okay, that was nice, interesting film art talk. Aza's movie, uh, The French Exit, starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Lucas Hedges, opens in theaters across this country this Friday, April 2nd. Good movie. Great Pfeiffer movie. Great. Okay, now let's play some guitar. Yeah. 